This is a jam-packed episode as Daniel Crosby shares his 10 commandments to pay attention to when building wealth. Are you tired of the traditional money advice? Me too. Bienvenida. Welcome to the Her Money Matters podcast. Join me each week for down-to-earth money conversations that will leave you with more confidence and inspiration to help you take control of your money. And you will probably learn some Spanish along the way too. Lista? You ready? Empecemos with. Let's get started. Hola, how's it going? This is Jen Hemphill, your host, and I am absolutely thrilled to have you here. There is a lot you're going to learn, and I'm going to warn you, you may have to take some notes. But if you aren't in a place to sit down, don't worry. You can always re-listen to the episode at a later time, or just go to today's show notes for this particular episode. In today's episode, you're going to learn why debt was a forbidden word in his household growing up. And you're going to learn how willpower is in limited supply and why eating that chocolate can make you a better investor. I absolutely love this tip. The difference between a story-based investor and a probability investor, which is very interesting, you're going to learn why he purchased Powerball tickets when he knows better. And you're going to learn three strong statistics that show why women are better investors. Let me share with you a little bit about Daniel Crosby. He has a PhD in psychology, was educated at Brigham Young and Emory Universities. He is a New York bestselling author of Personal Benchmark. His latest book, The Laws of Wealth was named an Investment Book of the Year by Axiom Business Book Awards. And The Laws of Wealth, that is his latest book, is currently being translated into Chinese and Vietnamese. Vamos a conocer a Daniel. Let's go meet Daniel. I am excited to have you, Daniel Crosby. So welcome to the Her Money Matters podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. I'm excited to learn more about you. You've got a fantastic book out there. You've got a really interesting background and career. So I want to dig into that. But first, I wanted to get to know you on a personal level. How did you grow up around money? What is your money story? So I grew up the son of a financial advisor. So I grew up in a home uh, that is, I think, probably unique in America today was money was very much discussed. We were very upfront about money. I learned a lot of great money behaviors. And I, I like to joke, but it's not a joke. In, in our home, debt was a four-letter word, just like all of the rest of the four-letter words. And honest to God, my dad would not let us say the word debt. And so grew up wow. in a house. Yeah, grew up in a house where um, my parents had me fairly young, but they had paid off the house by the time I, you know, my dad was 35. And that was just a big push for my parents and very much discussed with the children. And uh, money was uh, very much a part of the conversation and learned some great lessons there. And what did you learn? So I learned about investing. I mean, I learned about the miracle of compound interest. I learned about taking acceptable risk. I learned, even though I didn't call it that at the time, 
Uh, I learned about entrepreneurship and how uh, taking risks leads there to be no floor, uh, no floor on your income, but no ceiling either. And that was couched as a positive thing for me. And it, it really dramatically influenced the way uh, that I've gone about my business as an adult. Awesome. Awesome. Now you were mentioning you were you were not allowed to say the word debt. Like literally That's, you weren't allowed to say it. That's what you, liter I heard. Literally, I was not allowed to say it. I would get chastised for that saying is, the word debt. I find that so hilarious. I just wanted to make sure he was not allowed to even say it. I understood that they didn't like that, but wasn't even allowed to say it. That is interesting. Now, you were the son of a financial advisor and you got into psychology first, but then you're also into fund managing. So tell us how that happened. Yeah, so I started off college as a, a business major with an eye to becoming an investment manager. Um, and so after my freshman year, I went on a two-year mission for my church where I went to the Philippines for two years and, you know, tried to do a little good in the world. And that experience changed me dramatically so that when I came back from the two years in, in Southeast Asia, being a business major no longer felt like the most important thing. You know, helping people felt like the most important thing. And at that age, I was, you know, 20, all of 21 years old at the time I got back. You, you think in pretty black and white terms, you know, you think, well, I can be this evil businessman or I can be this, uh, you know, social worker or psychologist with a halo over my head. And so I went into psychology with an eye to being a clinician, you know, to be a shrink. And sure enough, finished up my college two years later, went straight three days after my bachelor's program, started a Ph.D. program. And uh, all with an eye to being a therapist. Well, about three years into that track, I discovered that the stress and the pressure of working with people uh, during their darkest hours was eating me up. It was making my making my life very difficult. I would go home every weekend, just you know, a ball of stress, back all knotted up. Couldn't go have fun or do anything because I was always taking work home. And I said, you know what, I'm not really sort of temperamentally cut out for this. I need to find a new way to apply my love of thinking about the reasons that people do the things that they do, uh, but do it in a way where, where no one's going to die from it. Um, and so I found uh, behavioral economics and behavioral finance in that process. So what is that? What is behavioral finance? And why should we be aware of it? Well, so the reason that you should be aware of behavioral finance, it's this discipline that sits at the intersection of psychology and investment management or investing, right? So it, it considers uh, the reasons why people do the things that they do with money. And it's really a fascinating thing because my ideas about what it takes to be a good person and do meaningful work have obviously become more nuanced since I was 21. And we see that in financial markets, we leave so much return on the table because we get in and get out at all the wrong times. We panic and sell and we get greedy and, and overbuy. We make all of these behavioral mistakes. They impact our ability to accumulate and grow wealth. And that has very real implications on our quality of life. So behavioral finance is taking the sterile academic discipline of finance and all of the sort of beautiful mathematical formulas that come along with that and, and injecting the messiness of human behavior into that equation. And it's, a, it's sort of a beautiful mess. Yes, and the messiness of human behavior. I love how you... <laughs> because, yeah, the human behavior is the biggest part, I think, right? 
where because of the emotion and as you mentioned when there's those economic crises where you make decisions based on emotion based on stress based on the unforeseen those are when we can either make mistakes <laughs> or not and it's just we are taking action based on the emotion versus the history versus the trajectories uh, versus all those things so exactly thanks right thanks for sharing that now I understand that there are 10 commandments if you will cuz you wrote this fantastic book and I'm going to make sure that there's a link in the show notes about this book but you there's 10 commandments of investor behavior can you take us a little bit through that what those are why are they important yeah so my book's called the laws of wealth and just like you said there's 10 commandments in the first part of the book and the very first one and I was intentional about the ordering of the 10 the very first one is you control what matters most so most people approach investing with a lot of fear and trepidation right and they're very scared about it because they think that being a successful investor is all about understanding uh what Janet Yellen's going to do what's going on in geopolitics what's Donald Trump's next move and what's it going to do to interest rates and what i try to make the case for in that first chapter is that the best predictor of your success or failure as an investor has to do with your ability to stick with just a very simple few behaviors that are in your control in up markets down markets and sideways markets and it's boring unsexy stuff like setting aside a little money each month like managing your fees when you invest like getting really broad basket of both stocks uh, and bonds and real estate and treasuries and all of these things just boring standard stuff is such a much better predictor and it's always in your control so with that first chapter i just wanted to empower the investor to say you know you mrs investor you can do this it's in your control love it so that's commandment number 1 how about number 2 so number 2 is you can't do this alone <laughs> so i empowered you in the first one now i got to bring you back down to earth a little bit so in number 2 it's you can't do this alone and so in that one i speak to the need for guidance because there's all of this literature that i cite some of in the book There are over 117 different ways that psychologists like myself have identified that we can make poor money decisions. These biases uh, that are referred to in the psychological literature. So there's like a hundred ways that you can screw this up. And uh, uh, sadly, things like education are shown to be a pretty poor predictor of how people do uh, because when you're under stress, when you're under financial stress, research has shown that. that you get a uh, 13% stupider you lose 13% hmm. of your IQ so even if you know the right things to do you tend not to do them so in chapter 2 i make the case uh for having a guide mm -hmm. for having a guide in the form of a coach or an advisor of some sort some sort of guidance 
that is going to help you point you on the right path. And I cite research that shows that people who work with a coach or an advisor do about 3% better per year than those who do not. And it's not because the advisor is putting them in these, you know, whiz bang outperforming stocks. It's because they're holding their hand and keeping them from making boneheaded mistakes. That's the biggest value that an advisor adds. And I speak to that in that second chapter. I love that because accountability is huge just because we've had I think you would agree where we're growing up and we're children, our parents keep us accountable in school, the teachers keep us accountable. But once we go into the real world, the accountability is really lies on ourselves, right? And it's just human nature. Like you said, we know what we need to do, but because life gets in the way or whatever else that case may be, we don't do it. But if we have someone to hold our hand, to keep us accountable, to say, hey, did you do this or really challenge us, it makes a world of a difference. It does. And I, I read research. I think there are a lot of parallels between modifying financial behavior and modifying other difficult behaviors like weight loss. I read research recently on weight loss that said the best two predictors of whether or not someone will lose weight are whether they weigh themselves daily, right? So that daily accountability and then whether their five closest friends have gained or lost weight. And so again, it's what's happening Who's holding us accountable? What's our frame of reference? So that advisor, that coach gives you that frame of reference and that daily accountability that you need to, to fight against those more basic urges to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. That's interesting. Very interesting uh, stats right there that from the research that you did, especially weighing yourselves, weighing yourself, and then what your closest friends around you. Right. Find some, some I need some skinnier friends. I'm I'm in the market for some skinnier friends as it turns out. Oh, you're funny. And how about commandment number three? So commandment number three is that trouble is opportunity. And so I'll lead into this one with a, a sort of a funny thing that happened to me recently. I I fly a lot for work and I sat next to a a woman on the plane and she was, you know, being very nice and conversational and says, you know, hey, are you going home? What do you do for work? And I told her that I was a psychologist that studies investment decision making. (laughs) And and she goes, let me get this straight. You went to eight years of college. (laughs) You went to eight years of college to tell people to buy low and sell high. And she falls prey uh, to, to what we see in number three, which is everyone knows that trouble is opportunity, but no one does it. So mm. in chapter three, you know, it's just like diet and exercise. Everyone knows what it takes to lose weight. You eat less and you move more, but it's really hard to do. Uh, so in chapter three, I give some some good research on how Every disastrous period in market history has been an immense buying opportunity. So the first thing that I try and do is give some education around that. And then the second thing I try and do is sort of true to what you're beginning to sense as a theme in my work is I try and help people lock that in. Mm-hmm. You know, I try and give some suggestions for how people can lock that in because I promise you the next time that we get another March of 2009, which was the very bottom of, of this last bear market, it's going to feel scary as heck to you and you're not going to want to do the right thing. So willpower is not enough. And I try and give some, some suggestions there for locking that in. Love it. Yeah, definitely. Willpower is not enough. I've been guilty of it, of really trying to not give in to wanting that piece of chocolate. And somehow I find myself eating it. So <laughs> even you- I, supposedly I have the willpower that I'm not going to do it, right? <laughs> 
Well, do you know? Do you know what's crazy is the thing about willpower in the research shows that if you exert willpower in one area, it tends to be used up, and you don't have access to it in another area. So huh. people who are dieting are more likely to cheat on their spouse, and you know, people who are denying themselves chocolate are more likely to sell their stocks. So we have this very limited sort of reservoir of willpower, and you want to do everything in your power not to have to draw on that for silly stuff. So automate your investment processes so that you take advantage of down markets, and you don't have to think about it, and you can save your willpower for chocolate and staying married. Right. So basically, there's that limited supply of willpower. Eat my chocolate, and then I will make good decisions in the stock market. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's what I hope everyone takes away from today. Eat whatever you want, and you'll make lots of money. Oh, I love that. Love it. Now, a quick message from today's sponsor. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Barry Tesler Linden and her year-long money school, The Art of Money, which is now open for registration for a limited time. If you've ever tried to get smarter or more conscious about money, you know it can stir up a lot of emotions. You might feel ashamed that you don't know the best way to tackle your debt, or maybe you're too scared to even peek at your numbers. If you're like a lot of people, money might be the one thing you can't talk to your sweetheart about without getting into a fight. See, money is never just about the numbers. It's also about your emotions, your life story, values, and goals. That's why looking at all of these aspects of money, from the practical to the emotional and beyond, is so important if you want to make real, lasting change in your money relationship. If you love to explore this kind of holistic approach to money with lots of expert and community support, check out the Art of Money. A year-long money school guided by my dear colleague Barry Tesler Linden. Barry is a financial therapist, mompreneur, author, and featured guest of this podcast. Over the past fifteen years, Barry has guided thousands of people into happier, more empowered, and refreshingly honest relationships with money. The culmination of her work is the Art of Money, a year-long global money school. It only starts once a year in January, but it's open now for a short early bird registration period. Learn all about it and get a taste of Barry's work in her free Money Mocha series at barrytesler dot com. That is b a r i t e s s l e r dot com, or you can find the link in the show notes. So commandment number four. So commandment number four is if you're excited, it's a bad idea. So here is where I talk about how most forms of sort of sexy, exciting ways of investing are in fact very、uh, nonsensical. And I, I give the specific example of IPOs or initial public offerings. So this is when a stock first becomes available to the public. And I, I cite the example here. Everyone has a story of you know if I had just bought Apple on day one, if I had just bought Facebook or you know whatever your stock of choice is.、Uh, but the research shows that on average, initial public offerings, so these brand new stocks, do twenty one percent worse than the 
S&P 500 three years on. And so, yeah, so I, my work is really about getting people away from their tendency to be story-based investors and tilting them towards being probability-based investors. Like, yeah, you might hit it big, but you're probably going to underperform dramatically. And you have to sort of play the odds. You have to try and be the house and not the gambler in investing. And I think that that is sort of the one most fundamental piece of what I try and get my clients to do is nothing's for sure, but you tilt probability in your favor at every turn and it ends up good for you over time. And that fourth commandment there that if you're excited, it's a bad idea is the very hallmark of that. I love that. And it's really for me, what really strikes me when you talked about that, when you mention probability as investors, that's where where you want to go versus the story base. It makes me think of that saying, especially when you're in business, that uh, you hear a lot or you're taught a lot to share a lot of stories because stories are what sell, right? So when those ideas of when you get excited, it's like you mentioned the Nike or or an Apple stock, if you would have you heard of those stories and that's what, you know, that's what entices people. So how do you overcome that? I mean, you have to just reel yourself in that you have to look at basically the history. And you mentioned the probability, becoming a probability investor. Uh, So is there something else that you should do? So the only thing more powerful than a happy story is a sad story (laughs) because you're never... You're never going to, uh, you know, out logic people. And I think that that's the mistake that so many investment managers and financial advisors try and do is they bang their heads against the wall of trying to give people stats and, and numbers. And these just don't appeal to us on the same visceral level that stories do. And so I give negative stories like I give the example of Sir Isaac Newton, you know, one of the smartest people to ever live, you know, undoubtedly smarter than you or I. And yet he lost everything he had in a financial bubble Mm. because he was not having his own personal benchmark. He wasn't worried about his own house. He was worried about trying to keep up with the Joneses. And so he invested in this speculative company. He had a sense that it was a sort of a speculative bubble. So he exited. But some of his friends stayed in They rode it all the way to the top and he watched with jealousy as they got richer than he was and he jumps back in right before it crashes and one of the most brilliant people of all time dies penniless because he's not able to manage his own behavior and he's not able to be a probability-based diversified investor. So the research shows, oh, he has this great quote. He says, I can calculate the movements of the stars, but not the madness of men. And so powerful, uh, <laughs> powerful, right? So one of the things he's effectively saying physics is easier than psychology. You know, physics is easier than investor behavior. And I think he's right. And so people are twice as upset about a loss as they are excited about a gain. There's a lot of good research that shows that that's the case. And so I think the only way that you sort of counteract this story based euphoria is with negative stories that sort of. Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. Demonstrate the opposite point. Now, all of this said, full disclosure, I did buy $10 worth of Powerball tickets this (laughs) afternoon. 
It's at 700 million and I am just a man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is so funny. That's great. Well, this is fascinating me. So let's move on to commandment number five. Okay. So number five is you are not special. And so my first, I've given three TEDx talks now. And the name of my first TEDx talk was you're not that great. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And in that talk, I talk about the power of disabusing ourselves of this notion that we are special. So psychologists, you know, like myself, one of the things that we see in in the human family is that we are by and large prone to something called overconfidence bias, which is we overrate the likelihood that good things will happen to us and we underrate the likelihood uh, that bad things will happen to us. So my lottery stupidity is a perfect example, right? Like my odds of winning the lottery are one in 300 million. And yet, you know, and yet I did it, you know, I did it because I think that good things are are unusually unlikely to happen to me. Uh, but we underweight the probability that we'll get divorced or get cancer or, you know, what pick the bad thing. And so investors need to enter the investment arena with the idea that if something bad happens to people, it can happen to me too. And we need to plan our portfolios as though we are not special, we are not different, and we are subject to all the same whims and vicissitudes of the market as everyone else. Um, And we should just plan for that and not try and tilt things uh, in our direction because we're special. Because we see things like people tend to overinvest in industries in which they work. So since I work in finance, I think, oh, I know finance, so I'm going to invest in financial services companies. We see that people tend to overinvest in the part of the country and even the country that they live in. Like, you know, people in Greece recently, uh, Greece, very small country, very volatile economy, Grecians had over 90% of their equity holdings, over 90% of their stock holdings in Greek companies, when Greece only represents a teeny tiny piece of the world. So we we have to get away from this familiarity and this belief that we know something that other people don't know. We have to view ourselves as just as dumb and fallible as the next person. And that's ironically when we're really able to do something great. Interesting. This is... I am loving this because there's in everything you've mentioned, basically, this is like you said, this is the 10 commandments of investor behavior. So if you are investing or about to invest in something else, you reading through this is going to be helpful in making those decisions, uh, along with talking to a financial advisor, right? So this is this is fascinating. So how about commandment number six? So number six is your life is the best benchmark. So a benchmark for investment purposes is what you compare your investments to, right? So most people benchmark uh, for for better or worse, mostly worse, uh, to the S&P 500. So even though they should be holding a diversified basket of stocks and bonds and a number of other asset classes, they compare the performance of their portfolio to how is the S&P doing or how is the Dow doing? And this is really kind of a silly thing uh, for, for reasons that I think are fairly obvious. But you know, so what I talk about here is how we need to be benchmarking to the life that we want to live. We need to look at ourselves, understand what we want out of life from a happiness perspective and from a return perspective. 
and then only take the risk necessary to to live the kind of life that we want to live. I mean, if we're a quiet, unassuming person without sort of fancy tastes, you don't need to take a lot of extra risk and give yourself a lot of extra heartburn. Um, And then the second piece here is I think that integrating your why, like your purpose, your reason for being into the investment equation actually has a lot of really powerful benefits. Um, I talk in Another book that I wrote, a book called Personal Benchmark that I wrote with Chuck Widger of Brinker Capital, I talk about this fantastic study where low-income savers who are having a very hard time setting aside any money because they don't they don't make very much, they tried everything to get them to set aside more money. They tried uh, rewards, they tried punishments, and nothing worked until before every time they made a big financial decision, they made them look for just a minute or two at a picture of their children. Hmm. And so when they looked at a picture of their children before deciding whether to make a big big saving or spending decision, their savings increased more than 200%. That is interesting. Isn't that cool? Yes. So they recentered their life on this personal benchmark, their life as the best benchmark. And this money wasn't this video game of like red and green dots anymore. Money was about serving this higher end and meeting a very specific personal goal. And that I think is a powerful concept. That is for sure. And I mean, why your why is such a huge aspect of how you should build your own life in general. But I love that study that was done because that that's interesting. Very, very interesting. So let's go to commandment number seven. Okay, so number seven is forecasting is for weather people. So if you're like me and you read a lot of financial blogs and other sites, you often see articles like, you know, this person called the Great Recession, hear what they have to say now. And the reason that we're drawn to these sort of financial forecasts is something very specific to do with our brains. So our brains uh, take up like two to three percent of our body weight, but account for about 20 to 25 percent of all of our metabolic spend. So about a quarter of all the energy you spend in a given day, of the calories you consume, about a quarter of that goes to your brain, even though it's just a relatively small part of your body. And so the fascinating thing about this is the brain is always, because it's so inefficient metabolically, your brain is always looking for ways to go into energy saver mode and to not try and think so hard. So one of the primary ways that we do this is by listening to people we think of as financial experts. And I cite a study in my book, The Laws of Wealth, that shows that people who are listening to a financial expert, the part of their brain associated with critical thinking and decision making actually goes to sleep. And so, uh, yeah, so the problem is they suck. So we, we want this. But then I cite research in the book, too, that shows that how pitiful their track record is. So we've got this really mixed bag of our brain really wants to stop thinking about money because most of us think it's kind of boring and terrible. But yet when we're listening to other people who are making these big doomsday predictions, they're not very good at it. So I think the point here is you want someone to be thinking about this for you, but you probably don't want it to be Jim Cramer. You want it to be you know, someone who's uh, an expert in you and someone you can meet with in your hometown that can kind of walk you through the paces. And a probability investor as well. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm learning something here. Awesome. How about commandment number eight? 
So commandment number eight is excess is never permanent. And so the reason that I love this one is there's not much that you can say pretty unequivocally that's true about the capital markets because they move around so much. But I feel like this is the one thing you can always say. Excess is never permanent. If things have been good for a really long time, they're probably going to get bad. And if things have been bad for a while, they're probably going to get better. And this is just a reality that people have to uh, latch on to because it's human nature to project the present reality into the future indefinitely. Like if you meet someone at a party and they're nice and they're cool, you assume that the next time you meet them, they're going to still be nice and they're still going to be cool, right? But this isn't the way that financial markets work. If things have been good for a long time, you can bet your bottom dollar that they're going to get bad. And if things have been really bad, they're just always going to get better. That is the way that it works. And so I think the lesson here in our current market, you know, eight years into a really pretty great bull market here, eight years in is we need to prepare ourselves uh, for the reality that we don't know when, but probably over the next eight years, it won't be as good as it's been for the last eight years. And that's fine. That doesn't mean we need to do anything dramatic or time the market. It just means that we need to sort of prepare our hearts and our minds to save a little more money, to tighten the belt a bit, and to wait out that period of underperformance. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. How about commandment number nine? So number nine is diversification means always having to say that you're sorry. And so the basic tenet here is that if everything's up in your portfolio at the same time, then everything will soon be down at the same time. <laughs> you know, I'm a big proponent that you need international stocks and domestic stocks and big stocks and little stocks and real estate and fixed income, you know, bonds and a little cash, all these things. You need this great mix of different asset classes in your portfolio. And to the extent possible, they shouldn't be correlated, which is just a fancy way of saying that they shouldn't move together. So something's always going to be down. If you're doing it right and you're getting these quarterly statements, something's always going to be down. But when you see that, you should go, okay, good. This is, I'm doing it right. If something's down, you want something to always be down because that means that maybe everything won't be down at the same time. That's a really good way of putting it. I've never thought about it in those terms, but I like how you describe that. That is perfect. Now, commandment number 10. The last one is a little bit heady and academic. I'll try and explain it in a layperson's terms. So the last one is risk is not a squiggly line. And so one of the things that financial academics do is that they have to come up with proxies for things. So when they're looking at risk, the risk of an investment, one of the things that they look at as a proxy for risk, since risk is sort of this concept that's hard to get your arms around, one of the things that they look at is volatility, which is the up and down motion of a stock, right? And so this is what academics see as risk, uh, is how much the stock goes up and down, right? Well, there's a couple of problems with this. First of all, I don't know about you, but a stock going up doesn't feel risky to me. <laughs> and so a stock that has gone up a lot would in some ways be classified as highly volatile. And that's not a great definition because that's not the way that we think about it. Mm -hmm. So in, in here, in this last chapter, I try and divorce us from this sort of academic sterile notion of what it means to take on risk. And I try and talk about some more fundamental considerations of risk. I talk about the behavioral risk again, bringing that back in from the first chapter. You know, the greatest risk to your retirement, to your ability to achieve financial security is not the markets, it's you. 
And so I try and reintroduce this concept of personal responsibility. And then I talk about some fundamental ways to look at a stock besides volatility, you know, just to look at what kind of brand is it? What kind of business is it? More fundamental considerations of how good an investment might be that are less academic than this concept of volatility. Awesome. Wow. This has been fascinating on the breakdown and a lot of the things, you know, as I was listening to you, definitely I gained some new knowledge. Some of the things I'm like, yes, that makes sense. And some of the things are simple in the sense of when you say it, it makes sense. And well, yes, obviously we need to do this. But then on the opposite side, it's not as easy to do depending on like in the moment, right? So I love that you know just having like your book handy, just reading for those of you listening, if you want to dig deeper into this, I'll have the link in the show notes for his book. But how you broke it down with the stories, I loved it. I love that. So this has been completely fascinating. I really, really appreciate it, Daniel. No, it's my pleasure. So as you know, we'll wrap it up because that basically you gave us so much information, so much golden information. As you know, this podcast is about making money simple and taking control of it. And I know you're male, but how would you finish this sentence? Her money matters because. Her money matters because women are better investors than men. So I got to close out with a couple of statistics. I know I we're going to ask for it. <laughs> Okay, good. I know we're over time, but I got to give the ladies a couple of statistics because women are better uh, investors than men. And all of the research suggests that this is the case. So a study of hedge fund managers uh, showed that funds managed by women have outperformed men by 9.06% compared to 5.82% for the men. So almost 4% better a year for the women which 4% doesn't sound like a huge number. It is huge yes. over an investment lifetime. That extra 4% is a very big deal. But it's not just women hedge fund managers who are better. A study of women retail investors, which just means, you know, like normal people with normal sized accounts, right, found that they did better during the Great Recession. The drop in their portfolios was half that of men. And that over time, that they beat the men by an average of 1.4 percentage points per year, and that single women beat single men by 2.3% per year. So women are dramatically underrepresented uh, in the financial services field. So for anyone listening to this with even sort of an inkling of an interest in this, women are from a biopsychosocial perspective. So this is just a fancy, you know, a fancy way of saying, you know, everything from the way that they're built to the way that they're raised. Women are are better positioned to be good, patient, level-headed money managers than men. And I think it's something that's underappreciated by the industry and by women. Oh my goodness. Thanks so much for sharing those stats. Those were amazing. You had from hedge fund managers to just normal day-to-day -day women to single women at the stats. That was awesome. So thank you again, Daniel, for joining us, for sharing all that you shared. I really, really appreciate it. It has been a blast. Thank you. I had a lot of fun too. Now that was a lot of good stuff. Seriously, a lot of good stuff. So I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed chatting with Daniel. Before I give you my takeaway from today, which it was hard to choose because there was so much good stuff from this interview. 
So before I do that, I want to do the weekly shout out or la mención, as we're starting to call it. And this week's um, mención, if you will, is going to Maraj, and it's for her recent participation in our community. Our community is meant to support each other, ask for support, all while easing those money conversation. And she has been asking for support, which can be hard to do for a lot of us. So thank you, Mara, for being an example to those who are still a little fearful and asking for support. Now, there are so many takeaways, as I mentioned earlier from this episode, but I wanted to highlight the research on women being better investors. As you recall, he mentioned how, in general, women were better investors. They were better hedge fund managers, retail investors, and single women outperformed men as well. So that was really, really interesting. And I hope this gives you the encouragement to move forward with investing. It doesn't mean you need to be a hedge fund manager. It doesn't mean you have to be an expert in investing. There are so many options to start investing right now, like the robo advisors, apps like Acorn. There are information, tools, and resources out there for you. It is just a matter of you taking upon yourself to start getting educated. Again, that doesn't have mean that you need to be an expert in all things investing unless you want to. If you want to, go for it. I'm all behind you. And if you don't want to become an expert, this is why we have financial planners who can give you that guidance that you need. A financial planner is a qualified investment professional who can help you meet those long-term financial goals by really taking a look at your current status and really finding you a, an investment or a strategy and knowing, guiding you where to invest to achieve what you want to achieve in the long term. Now, remember, I am not a financial planner. I'm an accredited financial counselor, which is different. As an accredited financial counselor, I can educate you on sound financial principle. I can assist you in overcoming debt. I can help you identify in those money management behaviors that aren't serving you. I can guide you in developing strategies to achieve your financial goals. I can support you through those financial challenges, which who doesn't have one and opportunities? And I can help you develop those new perspectives on money, on the dynamics of money in relation to family, in relation to yourself, in relation to your friends. So those are some of the things that I can do. So I just wanted to clarify that because I still get confused to be a financial planner, which I'm not. So that was a side note. I, I got a little distracted there. But the whole purpose of me sharing this with you is to Make sure to encourage you to get out there and start investing. You don't have to start investing a whole lot of money. Start with a little. Get your feet wet. Get out there. Learn some things. If investing, really, if you think investing is right now boring, try it out anyway. You may change your mind. And again, it doesn't have mean that you have to learn everything there is to unless you want to because there are professionals out there like financial planners, like accredited financial counselors, 
which is the one that I am, to help you, to help you educate you, to help you choose the best strategy out there. And again, as a financial planner, that's who the, that's who deals with the investments. I can help you with the education piece of investments. So I wanted to share that with you because again, I want to encourage you. There's not statistics show that in comparison to men, women aren't investing as much. Of course, the statistics don't tell all parts of the story because there can be women like you or like myself, whose husband is the one that is investing. And so maybe in that stat, that is not reflected in that, right? But I still want to encourage you that if investing is something you have not started to get your feet wet in that. So that is a wrap. You can find our fabulous guest, Daniel Crosby, over on Twitter. He's very active on there at Daniel Crosby. And I'll have that link in today's show notes. I'll have the link to the book, The Laws of Wealth, which basically he gave us a little summary of that in the show notes as well. Now, next week, we talk to Monica Liddell, and she shares with us how she picked herself up after going through bankruptcy. And I want to thank Daniel for joining us, for sharing so much good nuggets or so many good nuggets and for sharing his story as well. You can check out all the show notes over at jenhempill.com forward slash 119. Don't forget, if you absolutely love this episode, I encourage you and it would mean the world to me if you share this with someone that you cared about. Also, if you have not taken a look at my latest free tool, which is called My Daily Money Ritual, I encourage you to do so. It will help you increase your confidence and ease in how you manage your finances. It is broken down into four parts, which are how you want to feel around money, being honest with your own money headquarters, and where you need to focus on more the money win that you are proud of, and declaring how you're going to win money for that day. Again, that is my daily money ritual, and that is found over at jenhemphill.com forward slash ritual, or in today's show notes, that is over at jenhemphill.com forward slash 119. So thanks again so much for joining me today, and I will talk to you next Thursday. Chao. Hablaremos el próximo jueves.